You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. So I'd like to reflect for a couple minutes that it's been a long time since morphology was the only means of classifying lymphoma and CLL in particular. Flow cytometry, cytogenetics, immunohistochemistry all followed and helped to better define a patient's prognosis and diagnosis for that matter. And now this is supplemented by a growing list of molecular tests that provide even more precise diagnostic and prognostic tools in diagnosing CLL in particular and in making treatment decisions. So today we'll be discussing cancer genomics, including its current application in the diagnosis, treatment decisions, in prognosticating, and in looking at the risk of recurrence for patients with blood cancers such as CLL. This list, by the way, is very large and is growing, and I wanted to mention some of those topics we'll be talking about, including 17P, deletion of 11Q, IGVH mutation, and increased ZAP70 expression, and others as well. The scope of genomic testing includes gene alterations and harmful changes in the genetic code, and I think for a lot of these, we really don't know the etiologies, but we hope one day that testing cancer cells for mutation in this way will help us as oncologists find more personalized and customized uh, therapy for our patients and more successful therapy. So in this episode, we will be joined by Dr. Jennifer Brown, who's the director of the CLL Center of the Division of Hematologic Malignancies at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Brown is a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So I want to just reflect for a minute about oncology over several decades, which I've had the chance to see. But there has obviously been a big evolution in the understanding of CLL and other malignancies, lymphoid malignancies in particular, from just morphology to not just immunohistochemistry, but molecular biology. Jennifer, let me get your thoughts on that in terms of where we've been and where we're going. Right, absolutely. There's been quite a revolution over the last few decades, and we see that with actually redefinition even of diseases, right? So mantle cell lymphoma became defined when we identified 1114 translocations over expression of cyclin D1 and became its own subcategory, whereas it used to be mixed in potentially with CLL, marginal zone lymphoma, and not able to be separated. And now, you know, sometimes I see these overlap type cases of low-grade lymphoma, where it has some features that look like CLL, it has some features that maybe look like a marginal zone lymphoma, some features that look like a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. And usually for those types of cases, not only do we get, for example, sometimes a bone marrow biopsy or a lymph node biopsy, which we might not normally do for CLL, but if we're trying to get the most information about what the actual diagnosis is, I might pursue that. And then 
we also get genetic testing, both traditional cytogenetics, and then we have a next generation sequencing panel because the specific mutations that are mutated can point you one way or another in terms of the diagnosis. I also sometimes find that this evolves over the course of a patient's treatment. Like their disease may look more like one disease, CLL in the beginning, but then when they relapse, it may look a little bit more like a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. So we're starting to understand that type of evolution much more than we used to, I think. So I have to say, one of the sayings that I heard as a fellow or young attending is cancer doesn't read the book, meaning that, yeah, we like to classify things as very specifically as this diagnosis or that diagnosis. So with all the testing we're doing now, is that saying correct? That are there more overlaps than, than we might have expected? There are diseases that have characteristics of more than one diagnosis. I think that's certainly the case. I'm not sure if it's more than we expect from that saying. People have obviously realized that clinically for some time, right? That there's overlap. And in oncology, there's even a movement toward potentially looking at diseases defined by certain types of mutations rather than by the organ site of development, right? So we're not probably quite there yet, but as we're moving increasingly toward these molecular definitions, we will hopefully understand better how to treat each disease. Let me ask you for your clinical experience. You're seeing patients for second and third opinions. What are some of the common clarifications on disease status that you might make when you see a patient and you do all the molecular testing and other testing that you do? You know, I think nowadays when I see a patient, almost all the patients have had the FISH testing, which we've been doing for CLL, obviously, for a couple of decades now. And that's really important to identify deletion of the short arm of chromosome 17, for example, which we know is associated with more aggressive disease and worse prognosis. But there are two things that I don't see commonly, which are still very important for how we think about the patients. So one is actually testing also for somatic mutation of the P53 gene. And that is something that is increasingly available on next generation sequencing panels. We started doing it maybe a decade ago with Sanger sequencing, just looking at a couple of exons, so just a short area of the gene. But now generally the whole gene will be evaluated often together with other genes. So you can have a lymphoid panel or a myeloid panel then you'll get the sequencing of the p53 gene. And in general, for patients who have isolated p53 mutation, we treat them the same way as patients with 17p deletion. So that really changes their prognostic picture. And then the other feature is we increasingly understand the somatic hypermutation status in CLL. And this refers to how much hypermutation is occurring in the antibody gene within the CLL cells themselves. And a little over 20 years ago, that was described to be very strongly associated with disease prognosis. I would go so far to say that many of us now think it's almost like two different diseases, patients who have so-called unmutated versus mutated CLL in terms of the disease behavior and treatment outcome. And I really don't see that test, the so-called IGHV test, being done as often as I'd like in the patients who I see for referrals. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to let's really dive into CLL for for a while um, and talk about what are the prognostic indicators. But actually, I'd like to learn why. 
I mean, what, you know, why are those, uh, the factors that we're about to talk about associated with either a better or worse prognosis? What's the biology? Right. So P53 aberration is definitely the highest risk factor in CLL, most commonly through deletion of the short arm of chromosome 17. But then as I was alluding to, also sometimes through somatic mutation, point mutation in P53. Now, almost all patients who have 17P deletion will have a point mutation of the other P53 gene, but not all. And that's actually associated mm -hmm. with prognosis. So having two wild type copies of P53 is best. And then one copy off is not good, but two copies off is really associated with the worst prognosis. Do we know why that is any more than any other cancer? Not exactly. Certainly in the era of chemotherapy, the truly dismal prognosis for 17P deleted CLL was from the time of first treatment because essentially P53 aberration conferred nearly complete resistance in many cases to our standard chemotherapy regimens. Now, that's obviously changed now that we're in an era of targeted therapy and responses in even P53 mutated patients are much better. But they're still not as good as in P53 wild type patients. And, you know, biologically, I'm not sure we know why that would be in the cases, particularly of the B cell receptor pathway inhibitors. Venetoclax does induce apoptosis and is perhaps a little bit more analogous in some ways to chemotherapy in the way it works. And so having resistance to apoptosis from P53 mutation is not so surprising. Okay. So, which may explain why venetoclax is a good agent in this disease. That's probably fair. And then also, you know, BCL2 is very highly overexpressed in all CLLs. And interestingly, if you knock out BCL2, you can kill the cells without doing anything else. So that's a little bit unique compared to other cancers, which I think is also part of the reason venetoclax is such an important drug in CLL. Well, then the other primary prognostic factor is this issue of the somatic hypermutation present in the immunoglobulin variable region of the heavy chain gene in CLL. And it's very interesting biologically, because if you look at all CLLs, there's a it's a continuum biologically that ranging from about 20% of CLLs have no evidence of any somatic hypermutation in the variable region gene in their CLL, down to people who may have 10, 12, 15% hypermutation. And interestingly, it was just observed empirically that the best cutoff for a clinical outcome prediction is about 2%. So if you're less than 2%, mm -hmm. that's associated with more aggressive disease, but more than 2% is associated with much more indolent disease. And there are differences in terms of the degree of activity of the B cell receptor. The unmutateds tend to have much more continuous activation of B cell receptor signaling, which triggers proliferation and survival, whereas the mutateds often become anergic and don't have active B cell receptor signaling. But why there should be that cutoff that we really don't understand that and why the disease behavior should be so dramatically different as it is, we don't understand. For example, you can probably cure CLL patients who are fit enough for FCR who have a mutated IGVH. We have 55% are still in remission 12 years later. And that's without even screening for driver mutations, without screening for complex karyotype. Nonetheless, this was seen in the first mm -hmm. MD Anderson study. Whereas the unmutated patients have fairly steady relapse. Even if they achieve undetectable MRD, there's still steady relapse. So I think the distinction 
between IGHV mutated and IGHV unmutated CLL has become more and more clear with all the biological work going on at CLL. And like I said, I almost view it as two different diseases in terms of the prognosis as well as the therapeutic implications. Now, let me take it even a step further. There's patients who, and I've got several patients in my practice like this, and I'm sure you do too, but patients with an MLUS, monoclonal lymphocytosis of undetermined significance. Is that part of the spectrum? And is the biology of that essentially like a very uh, good prognosis CLL patient? Yes, exactly. So that's definitely part of the spectrum. And, you know, in 2008, the definition of CLL was changed from 5,000 lymphocytes to 5,000 monoclonal lymphocytes in an effort to try and better screen out those very low risk patients. So if you have less than the 5,000 monoclonal B cells, now you would be called monoclonal B cell lymphocytosis. And about 90% of them have a mutated IGVH, have few driver mutations, and In fact, many of them actually will regress. So in a study that the best follow-up study with about seven-year follow-up, a third regressed, a third stayed the same, and a third progressed to CLL over the seven-year follow-up. And so, you know, biologically, it's definitely a continuum. And actually, in the studies, the 5,000 isn't even the best cutoff to predict adverse disease behavior. 10,000 or 11,000 is a better cutoff, but... Wow. You know, then you would be diluting the very lowest people more, right, with people who will progress. But just so I, I think 5,000 is still a reasonable cutoff. And actually, that's another issue that I see sometimes is I see people who've been told they have CLL who actually only have MBL. And it has huge prognostic implications. Patients are extremely happy when you tell them that they don't have a leukemia. They just have a, this precancer condition. I want to ask you that. So when you see a patient now with a, I mean, now when we see people with MDS or an MPN, a myeloproliferative neoplasm, I've heard our colleagues say, oh yeah, that's a cancer. And they explain to the patient they have a cancer. If someone has an MLUS, a monoclonal lymphocytosis of undetermined significance, is that a cancer? Do you say you have cancer or do you not? I think most of us say not. Although I have to say, I also do a lot of the prognostic testing, because there is a subset of the more aggressive CLLs that just you happen to catch earlier. Interesting. Let's focus on this group, because I honestly find it to be very, very interesting. Do you get a sense it's the biology of that process, or is it an immune response, a host response, or is it both? But why can people maintain that for years and years or for a lifetime? I think it's the biology of the cells themselves, although there may be a microenvironmental component as well. Interestingly, in families where multiple people have CLL, if you actually look with highly sensitive flow cytometry, you can see that family members who don't have CLL sometimes pop up multiple of these low-level clones, and several, mm-hmm. they regress, but then one may eventually have more adverse features and progress. But it's almost like there may be sort of a predisposition there, like a field defect to develop such a clone and in that setting. And then also with increasing age, we know it becomes much more common in the general population to develop these clones. So in a sense, we've looked at patients with the best prognosis, uh, an MLUS or CLL that is more low grade. What would define sort of, in a sense, the worst prognosis? 
what would that patient have as their uh, genomics? Right. So that would involve probably a high percentage 17P deletion by fish with a high variant allele frequency P53 mutation on the other allele. It's fairly common that they also have notch one mutations. Those are often co-located with people with P53 aberrations. It's also common that they would have genomic complexity, which recent data in CLL suggests is actually five or more abnormalities rather than the traditional three or more cutoff. And then they would have an unmutated IGVH. There are even people with those features who may not progress that quickly. So there's always the feature of how the patient looks when you meet them, right? Some people come into clinic mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, they have a large disease burden, they're sick, and they need to be treated right away. This happens much less than it used to, of course. But still, mm -hmm. those are obviously the people at highest risk if their diseases progress that quickly to needing treatment. I want to take that a little bit further. In the age of more targeted therapy, I'd love some of, you know, some of your examples from clinic. You see a patient with a certain genomic finding, and that then leads you to do X, Y, or Z, because we have so many. Let me throw out some sort of names now. We can do fluidarabine-based therapy. We can do, some people are still using or CBP or a CHOP regimen or a or ibrutinib. I mean, there's so many options now. So how do you, on a clinic day, take your genomic findings, your clinical findings, how do you merge them to make those decisions? Right. So the 17P or P53 aberration is first. So those are patients who we don't consider for a standard chemoimmunotherapy at all. We look to targeted agents. Which targeted agent is still up for debate? There's longer follow-up with BTK inhibitors. There was a recent letter update from the NHLBI study for patients with 17P deletion. Only 35 patients treated with ibrutinib, but they had a 61% six-year progression-free survival in that phase two study, which I think we were all very impressed that that could happen in any population of 17P deleted patients, right? Yes. If you look at uh, some of the randomized trials, the three-year progression-free survival is about 70% in the Alliance trial for 17P deletion with ibrutinib. And in the CLL14 mm -hmm. trial with venetoclaxib and atuzumab for one year, the three-year is also about 70%. So, you know, I think some of us are feeling that continuous therapy may be better for 17P deleted patients to maintain that continuous suppression of the clone because they tend to divide more quickly. But the data are still emerging on that. But in any case, definitely no chemoimmunotherapy for those patients. And I actually particularly like to put those patients on combination clinical trials, particularly BTK and BCL2 together, for example, with the, with the idea that that would hopefully decrease the outgrowth of resistance. Interesting. And what's the data for that? Because it makes sense. Right. What do you well, think? so far, there's no data exactly. <laughs> there's some mathematical modeling. Okay. So if you assume that these resistant clones are pre-existing, which is what we've generally found, then if you treat with a single drug, the likelihood of having a single cell with a relevant mutation that is resistant to that drug is probably relatively high, right? But if you then take a second non-cross-resistant drug and combine the two together, then you have the two independent probabilities of having a mutation that's resistant to both of them combined, and that becomes vanishingly mm -hmm. much less likely in principle, right? 
but we still need the right. data to see that that's the case and to see for example if you do a year or two of that combination and then stop if the patient relapses five or six years later do they have any resistance mutations will they respond to the combination again we don't know yet because we're still just in the first phase of these trials when you start patients now on targeted therapy let me say for example ibrutinib is it with expectations that it is forever it's for the rest of their life well it's planned in my view to be until disease progression or lack of tolerance my personal view yeah. is that i think everyone's going to relapse eventually so i don't okay. necessarily think that you can put someone on and expect that for 30 years there's also the question of how long someone can stay on ibrutinib. Ibrutinib does actually have quite a few mm -hmm. side effects. And for example, even in the frontline Resonate 2 study, at five years, 40% of patients had discontinued. And in the original phase one, it was about the same. About half the patients in the frontline cohort had discontinued for adverse events by year four or five. So I don't know how long patients can actually stay on ibrutinib. Now, I think the next generation BTK inhibitors are better tolerated. With the four-year follow-up of a calibrutinib, for example, there were only 6% discontinuations for adverse events. 90% were still on drug in a frontline setting. So, but then there's still the issue of relapse, which, you know, I do believe that patients are not in complete remission. There's still disease there. There's still the possibility of disease evolution. So I expect them to relapse at some point. I want to ask you a little bit about disease evolution. And again, because you see so many patients with CLL, how often should we be looking? What should trigger us to look for changes in the biology? And what are some of the things that you see as uh, common changes over time? The most common is to acquire 17P or P53 mutation over time, or genomic complexity also develops sometimes over time. In general, I just recommend that you look well, if, if you look at diagnosis for prognostic purposes, then that's fine. But then I also like to look before first therapy and then serially, essentially at each relapse before each therapy. Now, of course, we're getting tests for resistance mutations becoming available now, particularly to BTK inhibitors. There are NGS tests for BTK cis481S mutation. And I don't recommend that you do that as a screening test in a patient who's doing really well on a BTK inhibitor and not having any problems. I generally suggest that if you're concerned the patient may be progressing, but you're not sure, you know, you follow them for a bit, you're still concerned. Sometimes getting a test at that point could help you think it through. But in my view, it's very important not to take the patient off the inhibitor that they're still clinically benefiting from just based on the test results, because we're still treating the patient. And I have patients who've had a mutation who are still on the drug three years later. <laughs> so mm -hmm, we don't mm -hmm. fully understand the natural history of these mutations. And so you don't want to get too prematurely worried if the patient's doing well. So I want to ask you, when I was at Dana-Farber, I published a study on use of the word cure in cancer care. And one of the findings was that we oncologists tend not to use the word cure. But I'm going to ask you the question anyways. Are there some patients who are cured of CLL? So I think that there are. I think that FCR in particular in that mutated subgroup may cure some patients. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. But then I would say that that is the primary case that we know of outside the context of allotransplant. 
and you know maybe CAR T cells are will emerge to have long enough follow-up to say that. Right now, we don't have evidence that our targeted therapies are curing patients necessarily. Although with the IGVH mutated patients and venetoclaxobinutuzumab, you do get very deep remissions, and it, it does look like that curve is starting to separate a bit from the unmutated patients. But we only have three-year follow-up on that, and we need another 10 years before we can see if it's similar to the FCR curves. All right, so I want to go back to some general questions about genomics in cancer care or for blood cancers in particular. What are some of the important points in educating patients on the meaning of all these tests? How much do you share? How much do you explain? And how much do people understand it? Right. I think that's really hard, actually. I think it's very patient-specific, too. So I really try to tailor it a lot to the patient. There are some patients who I find may not really understand it much at all. So you could describe it as, for example, a marker in the disease or something like that that helps us choose mm -hmm. therapy. If it's just about prognostic significance, then I, I find that's even harder to explain. But if it does dictate that there's a mutation and then we treat that with a specific therapy for the mutation, that is probably easier to explain. And then, you know, you have a range up to doctors, scientists who want to talk to you about what the papers they've been reading about their disease online. My personal clinic is probably overpopulated with <laughs> with those patients. <laughs> so, so actually, by the way, that's actually a very interesting topic. People that are really, really smart and have really, really good questions sometimes may overlook the hope element. So, how do you deal with that? That's I'm so glad you brought it up. So, I think I always need to point out what we do and don't know. And there are always some success stories, miracle stories that one may have, even in potentially very dire situation. Although, obviously, one has to be straightforward about the likely prognosis of any given situation. But with CLL in particular, I often find people being much more afraid than they probably need to be initially. And so mm -hmm. in that case, whether more education helps or hurts is something you have to judge, I think, for an individual patient on an individual patient basis. I mean, they'll help tell you, but I just find that it's what helps a given person really can be very different from person to person. And then how much people understand is also very different. And so gearing the level of information to what people want and what people benefit from, I think is maybe the mm -hmm. key intersection. Yeah. I think you're right. It's actually, it's the art of what we do as much as the science. I want to ask you, what's the, because you're at the vanguard, the front of the genomic testing in blood cancers, what's the future? You know, as you sort of think about what's exciting and what are we going to read about in the next few years? So what will it be? I hope that it will be even more targeted therapy based on the underlying disease features, so specific mutations that are targetable, resistance mechanisms that are targetable, better understanding of the disease driver mechanisms that allow us to actually have therapies that target those, and then maybe more in solid tumors, but then the whole immuno-oncology landscape as well and how we stimulate the immune system to help fight the tumors obviously comes substantially to the fore in the last few years. Right now in CLL, 
that's a little bit behind because of some of the immunologic defects in the disease. But again, as we learn more, maybe we'll be able to fight those too. Yeah, which is very exciting. Now, finally, I wanted to ask you, uh, what are some resources uh, for education and support for patients with blood cancers and their families? So disease-specific societies can be very helpful. So LLS, Lymphoma Research Foundation, American Cancer Society. CLL, we have the CLL Society run by a physician with CLL. We also have patient power. You know, I think other diseases also have these disease interest groups, which help provide detailed information for patients and also run a lot of support groups for patients. And so I often send my patients to those sources. A couple other questions. Many cancers we think of as proliferative diseases. There's proliferation, there's unchecked uh, growth of cells. and others, it's more that the cells live too long. How does that apply to CLL, given our, our latest understanding of the disease? Right. Well, CLL was one of those diseases that was originally thought the cells just live too long. They just never die. They just accumulate. But studies with deuterated water actually showed that many CLLs are a lot more proliferative than we thought. And so it's really that balance of proliferation and death that dictates what the disease does. So you can actually have some cells that CLLs that are proliferative, but if they also have a high rate of death, the disease doesn't necessarily progress rapidly. Whereas if the proliferation outweighs the cell death, then obviously the disease progresses. And I think that also is underscored by the success of the B-cell receptor pathway inhibitors, like BTK inhibitors, for example, because they really shut down a proliferative process and they don't induce cell death very effectively in vitro. So in vivo, it seems that they probably shut down a proliferative process. They block all the signals from the microenvironment that the cells normally survive Mm -hmm. with and the cells become very quiescent. Mm -hmm. And that may be, for example, why CLLs that are more aggressive may benefit from continuous BTK inhibition because that maintains this quiescent state of the cells and doesn't let them start to proliferate again. Finally, what's your research? What are you focused on? What are you excited about? Oh, I do everything CLL. (laughs) In the lab, I actually have a particular interest in the inheritance of CLL, and we're doing a lot of work trying to understand uh, genes that may be associated with CLL risk. And we had uh, done a study a number of years ago that identified the ATM gene, which is a well-known cancer gene as associated with CLL. So we're trying to do some work to further clarify that. I'm also doing a lot of genomics work on resistance to targeted inhibitors, so BTK, MPI3K, and venetoclax. We're working on that. I'm also excited about some of our clinical trials with the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, for example, in the setting of resistance. I think that may extend the benefit of BTK inhibitors for many patients. And then I'm also interested in trying to re-harness PI3 kinase inhibitors by understanding their toxicity, that if we could find some mechanisms to either manage the toxicity or harness it, namely harness the immune activation that they cause to allow those drugs to be used more effectively for longer for more patients. Thank you. I'll speak on behalf of my patients and everyone else. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you. My pleasure. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this very informative episode and discussion. I'd like to share with you that LLS now offers a series of interactive webinars entitled Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies. For this program and for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, 
and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families, and this is available at lls.org slash podcast. We are looking forward to you joining us for future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.